For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we thank You for your word. We thank you, God, that you're here among us, God, that you want to speak to us through the scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, we just confess that we need you. God, we need you um, for all of life, but we need you specifically in this moment to help us understand these words. God, we want to know you. We want to understand how the world works. We want to understand what it is that you've called us to. God, we want to have a right relationship with you. And so I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. God, give us humble hearts. Give us attentive minds in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hang out with Christians long enough, then eventually you're going to hear people talk about the idea of being saved. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Being saved. So you might hear something like, someone might say, Man, I got, I got saved when I was 19 years old, when I was a freshman in college. Or someone might say something like, man, I was saved when I was 24, and one of my friends invited me to a Bible study. And when Christians use this phrase, what they mean is, that's when I became a Christian. That's what it means. So to be a Christian is, by definition, to be saved. To be a Christian is to have salvation. But what does that mean? Where does that idea come from? Salvation is a concept that shows up all over the New Testament. The Greek word is the word soteria. Soteria means salvation. could also be translated deliverance or preservation. Just different descriptions of the same concept. Soteria. It's used 45 times in the New Testament. And so it's not a subject that is unique to Romans chapter 1. But it is a subject <clears throat> that is explained very thoroughly in Romans chapter 1. Right before our passage this morning, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So what Paul says is that to believe the gospel is to be saved. So here's the key question. Saved from what? Saved from what? We're actually going to organize our study this morning around four key questions, and this is the first. What do people need to be saved from? Before we answer the question, though, I want to give you a little background. We're only in our third week studying the book of Romans. We're still in the first chapter. 
not even halfway through the first chapter. And so a little background in case you have not been here the last couple weeks. This is a book written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the church in Rome. And it's a letter that is primarily about the gospel. It explains the gospel, which is the good news. In the first 16 verses, Paul has already used the word gospel four times. So, I mean, he is all about it. He's all about the gospel. We're not even out of chapter one, and we've already learned at least 10 facts about the gospel. I'm just going to rattle them off for you here just so you get a sense for how gospel-centered and how aimed at explaining the gospel this letter to the Romans is. In verse 1, Paul says that the gospel comes from God. In verse 2, he says that the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. In verse 3, he says that the gospel is about Jesus. In verse 5, he says that the gospel gives God's grace to people. The gospel is for the nations. The gospel brings God glory. The gospel is received by faith. The gospel leads to obedience. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the good news. And why is this information that comes from God through the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus Christ so good? Why is it good news? Paul says one of the reasons is because it can save you. It can save you. And he's going to argue further that it's actually the only thing that can save you. But again, that begs the question, save you from what? Well, the answer is in verse 18. He says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. God's wrath, the number one threat to the human species, believe it or not, is not global warming. It's not starvation. It's not nuclear war. The number one threat to humanity is the wrath of God. It's God's wrath. And that's true on a global scale. It's also true on an individual scale. The Bible says, Paul says here, you need to be saved. You need to be saved from the wrath of God. John Stott defines the wrath of God this way. He says, His wrath is His holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. Paul is saying, you need to be saved from God's judgment, from His punishment, from His judicial sentence against you, which the Bible says is hell. It's eternity separated from God in punishment. That's his wrath. But that begs our second question, which is why? Why is God's wrath aimed at people? Think about some of your friends, acquaintances who maybe are not Christians, or maybe if you just went up to a stranger in the grocery store, someone you don't know that well, and you were to tell them, hey, listen, you need to be saved from the wrath of God. How are people going to perceive that? (laughs) Nobody's going to take you seriously if you tell them that. It's kind of like if I pulled you aside after church and I said, hey, listen, we got to take cover. We got to get in the basement right now because there are nuclear missiles in the air headed for central Iowa. I mean, they're aimed right at Altoona. They're about to blow up this whole place. We got to take cover. 
What would be your initial response if I told you that? It would be skepticism. <laughs> you would say, mm, Darren, did you drink too much coffee this morning? <laughs> you need to calm down, okay? Calm down. And the reason is because it's such an extreme claim. It is such a dramatic claim. You're going to need some substantiation. You're going to need some evidence. You're going to need some explanation. Okay, wait a second. What? Nuclear warheads headed for Altoona, Iowa? Paul understands that this is a big claim. And so he's going to explain it. Why is God's wrath aimed at people? The answer is in verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. The reason God's wrath is aimed at humanity is because people are unrighteous. This is the reason. The phrasing is very deliberate here. By Paul, verse 17 talks about the righteousness of God. He turns around the next sentence, verse 18, he talks about the unrighteousness of people. It is a sharp contrast. He says, God is righteous, you are not. God is holy, you are not holy. This is the fundamental problem. Now, if you stop there, it still is not going to be that persuasive for most people. And Paul understands that his audience needs a little bit more explanation still. So if you just said, hey, you need to be saved from the wrath of God because you are unrighteous. There's a minority of people. If you say that to a convicted felon, somebody who's doing life in prison for multiple murder sentences or something, they might say, yeah, you know what? You got me. <laughs> I am unrighteous. I'm a mess. I need God's salvation. But that's not the way most people view themselves. Most people would respond to that claim and they'd say, what are you talking about? No, I'm not. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not one of the people Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. And the reason is because most people view unrighteousness in terms of behavior. That's the way they think about it. They, they view it primarily in terms of behavior, which Paul is going to get to behavior, but he doesn't do that until later. Verse 29, he says this, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And most people, they look at those behaviors and they say, see, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me. I don't do those things. Now, if you stop and you actually take a look at that list, and you actually examine yourself with some humility and some honesty, that is you. <laughs> Have you ever disobeyed your parents before? I love that he puts disobedient to parents on the list. Have you ever been envious? Have you ever been proud? Have you ever been boastful? But most people, they, they think about unrighteousness categorically, and they say, that's bad people over there, and I'm a good person. I'm not unrighteous. And that's why Paul, he doesn't even get to examples of unrighteous behavior until later. Where does he start? He starts with the heart of unrighteousness. This is a very important principle to understand. If you want to understand salvation, what do you need to be saved from? Unrighteous external behavior, it comes from somewhere. It springs, it flows from an unrighteous heart. It flows from a wrong internal attitude and belief about God. Always. It's the heart 
of unrighteousness. Now, what is the heart of unrighteousness? There's three components to it, according to Paul. First, the heart of unrighteousness fails to glorify God. Verse 21, he says, though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. So before you ever get to unrighteous behavior, in your heart, internally, invisibly, in your thought life, you stop glorifying God. You don't glorify God. This is the heart, Paul says. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? We don't normally talk about glorifying things. This is a huge theme in the Bible. So let me give you an illustration of what it means to glorify something. To glorify something means to honor it. It means to magnify it. It means to celebrate it, to get really excited about it, to praise it. So classic example, raise your hand if you've ever been to an Iowa Hawkeye football game at Kinnick Stadium. Okay, several of you. I have a picture here. This is the Iowa Hawkeyes, the team. They're coming out of the tunnel. There's fireworks going off. This is pre-game before they actually play the game. And I've been to a number of games at Kinnick Stadium. Full disclosure, not a Hawkeye fan. Uh, don't really have a whole lot of skin in the game, but I, I'm from Chicago originally, and I normally root for the Cyclones, so I apologize to all you Hawkeyes in the room. But I remember I was at a, I was at a Hawkeye game. They played uh, Michigan. This is years ago. Michigan was ranked in the top 10, and they had what they call a blackout, so everybody is supposed to wear black. And before the game, this is basically what happened. They run out of the tunnel. There's the flags, the fireworks. And every single person there is utterly losing their minds with excitement. I mean, people are screaming their lungs out. And in that moment, everything is designed to glorify the Hawkeyes. That's the point. All of it. The fireworks, the blackout, the cheering, the announcers, the music that they're pumping through the system, all of it is saying together with one voice, the Iowa Hawkeyes are awesome. We love them. We are behind them. We support them. And that's not all. You think about all the money spent by every person to get there. The tickets, the food, the parking. You think about the, the time that you have to take a whole day out of your schedule and devote it to that activity. You think about the traffic they had to fight to get into Iowa City on a Saturday during football season. All of that, it is a picture of glorifying something. And the Bible says that God is the most glorious thing in the universe. In fact, God made the universe. Everything that you look at and that you're captivated by, and that you could get excited about, all of it is derivative. It's contingent. It comes from God. He brought it into existence. Paul says, the unrighteous heart looks at God and is totally unimpressed. It is unmoved to glorify Him. Secondly, the heart of unrighteousness fails to show God gratitude. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. So not only are they not excited about God, they're not passionate about God, they don't even feel a sense of thankfulness towards God. There's no appreciation to God for all that He's given them. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it, why, it is meant to be shocking, what Paul is saying. Why is it so shocking? Why is it so egregiously wrong that people would not glorify God or give thanks to God? Well, he explains this. 
If you back up, verse 19, he says, What can be known about God is evident among them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So this is incredible. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, listen, obviously God is invisible. He's invisible. He has to be by definition because in order for God to create the universe, he must exist outside the universe. He has to be beyond it and above it and different. The word holy, God is holy. It means he's set apart. He's altogether something different than the creation. He is the creator. And so, of course, he's invisible. But even though he's invisible, Paul says, you can still see him. You can still see him. And what he means is not that you physically see him with your eyes. What he means is that his existence and even his nature is obvious. It can clearly be understood because of what he has made. The the idea that there is an intelligent, eternal, creative, all-powerful being is obvious because of the existence of the universe. This is what Paul's saying. And what's interesting is modern science is just beginning to catch up with this. So this is what people have understood intuitively for thousands of years, and it's only within the last couple hundred years with modern science that you have theories that sort of write God out of the equation, and they try to explain the existence of the universe purely in terms of natural phenomenon. But even modern science is beginning to understand that doesn't work. And the reason it it doesn't work is because everywhere you look in the universe, there is organized information. Everywhere. In the galaxies, in the stars, in the solar systems, on a macro level, on a micro level. There's information, there's, there's like computer programming code that is written into biology and astronomy and geology and cosmology. And it's everywhere you look. Everywhere. The universe is structured, it's organized, it's ordered. Just like when you take your phone out and you open up an app, think about whatever your favorite app is, and when you open that app, what's happening, I don't really understand this, but on a really high level, there is code written in the background. You don't see the code, but there's a language that is written. It's like, it's like an instruction manual for the software. And it explains to the software how it responds to inputs and what outputs it's supposed to give. And it's all written by a person who designed it, and you interact with that, and when you interact with an app on your phone, you know this was made by somebody. It's not like somebody just threw a bunch of characters randomly into the computer, and then you, know, you just wait long enough, and boom, out pops an app that functions exactly like you want it to. No, it's, it's written by somebody. It's created, it is designed by an intelligent being that exists outside of the app, and the universe works the same way. All life works the same way. Planets, energy, matter, it all works the same way. It can't exist without an intelligent designer. And people have always known this, especially the people Paul is talking about. Now, when Paul says they, he keeps saying they. Who is he referring to? For they, though they knew God, they did not glorify him. He's talking about the people who lived close to the creation event in Genesis chapter 1. That's what he's talking about. Romans chapter 1 is full of allusions to the early chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the event that he's talking about. 
the creation of the universe. So he's, he's referring to the people who lived close to that time. I believe he's talking about the generations that lived prior to the flood, the early chapters of Genesis, because what you read is that people morally just totally go off the rails in the early chapters of Genesis. And he's using those people as a case study. He, he knows that his audience is familiar with that story, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And he's using them as a case study, and he says the problem then was this, and that's still the problem now. So you can see it in other people. Often you can't see it in yourself. And so what he's saying is these people knew God created the world. I mean, Adam and Eve were there. <laughs> Adam actually witnessed. There was, no, there was no woman. All of a sudden, God creates a woman. <laughs> he wakes up from a deep sleep. There she is, his wife. And the people who lived in the generations after them, Adam and Eve, they lived to like 900 years old. Many of those people, they would have known Adam and Eve personally. They certainly would have known some of their children or their grandchildren. And so they knew the story of creation. They knew who God was, and they still didn't glorify him or give him any thanks. And you think, why would somebody do that? Why would anyone do that? It, I have a little more sympathy for our generation. Okay, we, we have grown up in a culture and we have grown up in a society where so many people have rejected God. So if you're a kid and you're, you're growing up in an environment where you're told constantly God doesn't exist, we don't need God, that's just a bunch of superstition, you could understand how that's just sort of written out of somebody's thinking. They think, well, you know, I, I, I guess I, I just, there's no one to worship, there's no one to glorify, there's no one to be thankful to. I can just be thankful to random chance of biological evolution or whatever. That's how I got here. There's a little bit of sympathy for that, but, but these people, the people who live close to the creation, why would they reject God? Why would they not glorify Him? Why would they not be thankful to Him? Well, Paul explains this. He says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Again, Reference to Genesis 1. These are the, the, okay, so you have the creator, and then you have his creation, the things that he made. And he, it, why does Paul say that they don't give thanks to God, they don't glorify God? Because they wanted something else. That's what he says. There was something else that was more exciting and more valuable to them than God, and so they exchanged the glory of God for something else. That's what they did. They made an exchange. Why do you exchange something? I was at Menards this week making an exchange. I was working on filling some cracks in my concrete, which is actually quite a bit of work. And so I did all this work to prepare it. And then I used this certain crack sealer that I got at Menards and it was just hot garbage. I mean, it was just like the worst product ever. So I said, no more of this. I took all the tubes of that back and I exchanged it for a different product. You guys have had that experience. Why do you exchange something for something else? Well, it's because the thing that you're exchanging for, you view as better than the thing you currently have. That's the way that it works. It's either broken, it's not what you need, you have too much of it, and so you say, I, I don't need this, I don't want this, this is deficient, I need that instead. And this is exactly what happened. 
This is what happened with the people in the early chapters of Genesis. This is exactly what happened with Eve in the Garden of Eden. You'll read Genesis chapter 3. She has a perfect relationship with God in paradise. That's what she has. And then she's deceived by Satan. She believed something about God that wasn't true. She believed that God was withholding good from her. And she believed that she didn't need him. I can be my own God is essentially what Satan told her. And so she made an exchange. She said, my relationship with God for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She traded it. I'd rather have that than this. And if you are not excited about knowing God and having a relationship with Him, you're going to find something to glory in. You're just going to. You can't even help it. You're going to find something to get excited about. You're going to find something to chase after. And if you're not thankful to God, if your heart is not full of gratitude for all that He's given you, the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. That's what it is. You will develop a mindset that I deserve. I am entitled to whatever that other thing that you want to glory in is. So this is the heart of unrighteousness. And you see it everywhere in the world. Everywhere. The world is full of people chasing after things that can never satisfy them. Money, possessions, power, relationships, sex, experiences, hobbies, career success, sports, health, fitness, all of it. Fame. And they chase and they chase and they chase and they chase. You've probably done this. You might be doing it right now. And where that leads is unhappiness and ungratefulness. And all this adds up to a description that is the third component of the heart of unrighteousness, which Paul describes as godlessness. Verse 18 again, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. Godlessness and unrighteousness, they're synonymous. They, they go together. And godlessness, this is important. Godlessness is not necessarily not going to church. Godlessness is not necessarily not believing in God. It's not necessarily living a totally wild, immoral lifestyle. Godlessness is a condition of your heart that lives like God is not there. You just don't factor him into your decision-making or your thinking. He's not valuable. He's not exciting. He's not worthy of your gratitude or your praise. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says where? With his mouth? Nope. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's important. You can say with your mouth, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I go to church, and still say in your heart, with your values, with your affections, with your attitudes, there's no God. People do this all the time. All the time. So what do we need to be saved from? God's wrath. Why is God's wrath aimed at people? Because of their unrighteousness. Why is unrighteousness such a big deal? That's the next question. Question three, what is the result of unrighteousness in people? First, Paul says, unrighteousness suppresses the truth. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? What truth does unrighteousness suppress? What's the truth about God? (laughs) 
It's this self-evident reality that is screamed from the existence of the universe, that God exists. He's eternally powerful. He's divine. He's creative. We can see his justice. We can see his goodness. And we can see that the fact that you can even evaluate whether or not is good is because God has put a conscience in you. Have you ever thought about that? That all people throughout all times and all places in history have absolute moral values. There has never been a human society that has existed where murder is accepted as good or theft Stealing is accepted as good. Every single group of people, no matter their language, their background, their culture, even their, their religious structures, they believe murder is bad. Stealing is bad. Kindness is good. Self-sacrifice is good. Why are people wired that way? None of the other creatures are wired that way. Why do people have a sense of aesthetics so you can appreciate beauty? Have you ever thought about that? You are different than the other creatures. You look at a sunset and you think, Oh my goodness. <laughs> you look at a mountain, you look at the ocean, and, and you just appreciate the beauty in it. No other creatures can create the way people can. So spiders can create spider webs, and moles can create tunnels in the ground. They can create things that are sort of in conjunction with their nature and their instincts, but people create art and music and technology. And it's because we've been made in the image of God. We were made to reflect an image and glory in God. This is the reason you exist. You exist to worship Him. You exist to love Him and enjoy Him. And when you don't, what Paul says is you're actually hiding His glory. You are suppressing the truth. The second result of unrighteousness is that unrighteousness reverses God's design. Verse 21 again says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. So instead of bearing God's image, instead of reflecting His glory, they mar His image and they hide His glory. When, when people don't live according to God's design, when people don't reflect His nature and His character, it's not just neutral. It's not just, okay, we're suppressing the truth. You're actually hiding it and you're perverting the truth about God. Third result of unrighteousness is that it brings God's judgment. We've already said that God's judgment is His wrath. God's judgment includes hell when Jesus comes back to judge the world. That's certainly true. But that's not the only way God judges people. And I don't think that's even primarily what Paul has in mind here. God's judgment begins in this life. You can be experiencing God's judgment right now. Look at what he says in verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. We're going to talk about this more next week. But if you look at history, one of the hallmarks of a culture in decline is the acceptance of sexual immorality. Just about every time. It's one of the hallmarks of a culture in decline. 
I've often wondered why that is. I've often wondered why people in general, in my experience, people struggle with sexual morality. There are some common vices that people have, and sexual immorality is at the very top of the list. People struggle with greed, pursuing money. People struggle with drugs and alcohol. People struggle with sexual immorality. And I've wondered, why is that so pervasive? Why, is that, why, why are human beings like a moth to a flame when it comes to sexual immorality? And I think the reason, I think it's explained here, at least part of the reason, is that if you're going to look for something besides God to glory in, if you're going to look for something besides God to get excited about and be satisfied by, what is the next most glorious thing after God in the universe? It's people. Human beings are the closest thing to God because we are the only thing in all of creation that has been made in His image. And so when people use other people for self-satisfaction, oftentimes it's perverted. It becomes sexual, at least includes that. There's all kinds of other messed up things as far as the way people relate to one another. It's It's not only sexual immorality, but that often is part of the equation. And God's judgment for human unrighteousness in the short term, here in Romans chapter 1, it is not to step in and send bolts of lightning down from the sky. There are very, very few instances throughout history, especially in the Bible, where you see this. You see it at the flood. You see it at Sodom and Gomorrah. A couple other very isolated instances. But normally, what God actually does is He steps out of the way. (laughs) says He gives them the freedom to pursue what they want to pursue. It says he delivers them over. That's what you want? Go get it. You can have it. So author and a poet, Irish poet from the early 20th century named Oscar Wilde, and he famously said this, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Just, oh, that's what you want? Okay. You don't want me? You just want to run around and pursue money and sex and fame and fun and activities? Go get it. (laughs) Have at it. God will let you pursue things that cannot satisfy you. It's an act of judgment. And pursuing those things over time, what Paul says is it ruins your ability to perceive what's actually valuable. That's what happens. Is it, your, your ability to think and evaluate what is actually valuable, what is actually good. He says their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. We live at a very unique time in history. And I, I don't want to be like a doomsday type of person, but, but I think about, I'm 39 years old. I was born in 1983. And I have seen a rapid progression, or my parents, <laughs> my parents were born in the late 50s, there, there has been such a rapid progression of moral decay in our cu- culture specifically. And I, I look at it, and oftentimes it, it, it's like I actually, I have a hard time understanding. It's confusing to me. How can people get to a place where they believe, they really believe in their heart, it is morally good to kill unborn babies. It's not just like, hey, you should have the freedom to do it, but we should celebrate it. it, it it's like a beautiful, virtuous thing. Or how do, get, how do people get to a place where, where they celebrate 
homosexuality and indoctrinating children that this is like totally a legitimate lifestyle. And not only, not only should we accept it, it's virtuous, it's good, it's wonderful. It's almost like better than God's design for human sexuality. It's crazy to me, but Paul explains. It all starts. How do you get there in your thinking? It starts with a failure to glorify and give thanks to God. Over time, your thinking will become worthless. Your heart becomes darkened. And the point here is not for us to stand back or sit up on our high horse and say, man, look at all these crazy people in our culture. Glad I'm not one of them. That's not the point. The point is to understand you are not immune to this. Your thinking can become worthless. Your heart can become darkened, and so can mine. As soon as we stop giving glory to God, as soon as we stop being thankful in our hearts to Him, we are just as vulnerable to worthless thinking as every person around us. Question four, what is the solution to unrighteousness in people? Okay, what's the solution? The answer is the gospel. It's the gospel. This is why people need salvation. This is what Paul says in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The human race has made an exchange. We've said, uh, God, not interested. (laughs) I want to trade you in for something else. Fill in the blank. It's different for everyone. I I want to trade in God for success, for money, for comfort, for pleasure, for friends, for popularity, whatever it is. But on the cross, there was a different exchange that took place. God made an exchange. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, He took your unrighteousness. He said, hey, give it to me. He took your unrighteousness. He took your guilt for sin, which is something way worse than what he has. He says, give me your unrighteousness. And he took it on himself, and he was punished on the cross. The wrath of God aimed at you for your sin was poured out on Jesus. And he says, you give me your unrighteousness, and I'll give you something in exchange. And he offers you his righteousness. You can be righteous like God. You can be holy. You can be forgiven. You can be pure. You can be cleansed because of what Jesus did on the cross. All you do is receive it in faith. That's all you do. Three points of application just quickly to close. First, acknowledge the unrighteousness that lives in your heart. This is the first step of salvation. The the first step of salvation is you must acknowledge you need to be saved. You must acknowledge, I am guilty before God. I might not be a murderer. I might not be uh, a drug addict. I might not have done horrible things in my life, but certainly you have worshipped and loved and gloried in things that are not God. Certainly you have had an attitude of godlessness at times in your life. Nobody is immune to that. You need to acknowledge the unrighteousness that lives in your heart. And if you're honest with yourself, 
you've done some really unrighteous behaviors too. (laughs) Everybody has. Everybody has. So you need to acknowledge that you need to be saved. You are not righteous in and of yourself. Number two, receive the righteousness of Christ. He freely offers it to you. He wants to to make the trade. He says, listen, Jesus died for you. Jesus came down. God became a human being, and he died on the cross to take the wrath of God that's aimed at you. And he says, you do nothing. All you have to do is believe that. You just accept that. You just receive what God has done for you. You trust in him. You say, man, my unrighteousness, the only thing that can cure me of it is Jesus. That's it. It's not going to church. It's not doing good works. It's not reading my Bible a bunch. It's not giving to the poor. It's not cleaning up my act. It's simply what Jesus did for me. You need to receive that in faith. And then the third application, live a life filled with gratitude. Live a life filled with gratitude. I don't care who you are. Everyone struggles with what Paul is describing in Romans 1. Every single day, I fight the urge to exchange the glory of God for something else. Every day. For money, for success, for fun. I love to have fun. (laughs) I don't know. I love doing fun things for activities, for doing projects around the house, for spending time with my wife and my kids. There is a pull in my heart to say, that's the thing that I want more than anything else. That's the thing that I'm more excited about than anything else. You are going to feel that pull, even if you're a Christian, even if you've already been saved from God's wrath and your own unrighteousness, there's going to be a temptation practically day in, day out to make that exchange. How do you guard against it? It's through thankfulness. It's through gratitude. And thankfulness in the Bible, it's not just an internal attitude. It is that. It's where it starts. It's also an activity. Thankfulness is an activity. It's something you do. And the primary place where you practice thankfulness is in prayer. That's the primary place. Get alone with God. Pray to Him out loud. Say, God, thank you. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you love me. Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Thank you for all the things that you have in your life. You could thank God every second of every day for the rest of your life, and you would never run out of things to thank him for, ever. Every breath you draw is a gift of his mercy. All of your life, every moment you're given, comes from God. It's his sustaining power that even keeps you alive. (laughs) So thank him. We cannot afford not to do this. Your heart will wander to other things so quickly. So if you want to guard against an unrighteous heart, thank God. Thank him in prayer. Thank him through singing. Psalm 717 says, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord most high. This is why, a big reason why we sing. We sing to cultivate a right attitude in ourselves. God doesn't need your praise. He loves your praise if it's faith-filled and spirit-led, but he doesn't need it. God is not deficient of anything. When we sing praises to God, it changes us. It stirs our affections, makes us thankful. 
Thank God through telling other people about what he's done for you. Psalm 9.1 says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. You, think, you can thank God with the gathered body. You can thank him in your community group. You can thank him when you have couples over for dinner. You can thank him when you're having play dates with your kids. In your Bible study, you can say, man, this is what God was teaching me this week in his word. This is something God convicted me of this week. This is something God encouraged me in this week. This is something I've been praying for. God answered my prayer. You can share your testimony of what God is doing in your life with other people. That's a great way to practice gratitude. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That's all we can say sometimes, Lord. Just thank you for all you've done for us. You're so patient with us, God. We're so fickle. We're so easily distracted. We're so easily impressed by shiny objects. And God, I pray that we would see your glory. God, I pray that we would, in faith, get in your word, get in prayer, cut through all the noise and all the distraction and see that you are the real treasure. God, that you are what we were made for, that you are what can satisfy our souls, and I pray that we would worship. I pray that we would glory in you, that we would glorify you, and our hearts would be full of gratitude. God, I pray that we would be a church that is full of thankfulness. God, I pray that you would just cleanse us of complaining, of grumbling, of slander, of gossip, that the thing that would flow out of our hearts is unbelievable gratitude because of what you've done for us. That we would just be telling each other all the time, do you know how good God is? Do you know how good God is? Do you know what he's done for me? That would permeate our relationships, permeate our hearts, God. So we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've saved us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to continue to worship the Lord. Uh